Hello, and welcome to the Mobile Dev Memo Podcast. As always, I am your host, Eric Sufert. My guest today is Jessica Lee. Jessica is a partner and the chair of the Privacy, Security, and Data Innovations Practice at Loeb & Loeb, a New York-based law firm. Jessica's practice focuses on emerging media, technology, advertising and promotions, privacy and intellectual property, and she has represented clients in a variety of fields, including internet, film, music, sports, telecommunications, and consumer products. In this episode, Jessica provides helpful background on the history of digital privacy law, including why the EU is seemingly ahead of the U.S. with respect to codifying consumer digital privacy into law. We also discuss the benefits that the clarity of a federal privacy law bestows, how quote-unquote small tech should stay abreast of and adapt to the privacy laws that are primarily targeted at big tech, and why we've seen so much acute interest in privacy legislation recently. Jessica is a true subject matter expert on digital privacy, and I enjoyed our conversation immensely. I'm very excited to present this conversation with Jessica Lee. Jessica, nice to see you. Thank you for joining me. Nice to see you too. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your time. We're first acquainted when we both did a panel for, I believe it was the drum. They had like some kind of advertising week bonanza, like kind of peak COVID. So it was all on Zoom. And you and I were on a privacy panel together and I was impressed by your insights. And that is the reason that I have asked you to join me today, which uh, you so graciously accepted that invitation. Yeah. And I was excited because I was impressed with you as well. I started following your blog and on Twitter. So the lawyers have to stay plugged into what business teams are doing so that it always helps to keep me informed. I'm glad to hear you say that. So you are a lawyer. You are a specialist in this area. You're the, the chair of privacy, security, and data innovation at Loeb and & Loeb. And I am like just an opinionated person. And so I thought, and that is, those are my bona fides there. And so I thought it would be great to get a real expert on the podcast to give essentially like a survey of the most recent developments in privacy legislation and also maybe give us a little sneak peek as to what we can expect. Yep, sounds good. Excellent. So I'll start it off with kind of like a high level premise here, which is why do you think a federal privacy law has yet to be enacted? So what roadblocks have prevented one from being passed? Because I think anyone in the sort of digital advertising space and and just operating generally in, in digital you know, keeps hearing about the fact that like we needed a federal privacy law, like it's it's going to come any moment now. It's imminent or it, it's inevitable. It's imminent. And I guess the question is, why are we still talking about that? Why hasn't one been passed? Sure. And probably a number of reasons. You know, one, not surprising if we're talking about a law, we're talking about politics. And I think over the years, politicians and, and you know, privacy is a bipartisan issue. I think there's bipartisan support for the concept of federal privacy. But each side has their own agenda and motives in terms of what they're looking for. And I think that always makes things challenging. You know, if you go into a year like we're going to go into where the House and Senate have divided parties, that generally makes legislation hard to pass. And then we're coming into, you know, two, two plus years of COVID and potentially a recession. So they're also competing priorities. But more specifically, historically, there have been two key areas where privacy legislation gets stuck. One is preemption. Because for businesses to get behind a federal privacy bill, they want to have security that 
it will preempt other comprehensive state laws so that they're not kind of stuck in the patchwork where they are today. Like that's a benefit. That's a motivation why you see sort of a louder call right now for federal privacy. It's because there are five states and there likely will be more states with privacy laws. And those states have different definitions. They all have different contractual requirements. They have different, like slightly different obligations. And so navigating that five times, you know, 10, if you get to 50 states, that's a lot to um, to manage. So I think there is a desire from that perspective to get to a place where there's one standard that, you know, companies have to deal with. There will be like sector specific things for health and financial information, but there's a desire to have one standard that covers in a comprehensive way, personal information. And then the other piece is a private right of action. So the privacy advocates don't feel like Privacy will be adequately protected unless there's a private right of action, which means an individual has a right to bring a lawsuit in their own name or as part of a class action. And again, business community is very opposed to private right of action because if you look at other states or other statutes, I should say, like TCPA, for example, which regulates tech spam, um, you see these huge fines would be like one text got sent or a text got sent to a wrong number or something. Or, you know, and, and in fairness, obviously there are cases where there's been text spam and, you know, there's a clear violation of the law, but it leads to these huge fines that are usually paying off plaintiff's lawyers and leading to something very small for the actual consumer. But preemption and private right of action are kind of the two sticky areas um, that's been hard to get past. Right. I saw when the DSA was passed, I read a piece about it, uh, or maybe it was like a podcast. I think it was a podcast. And someone had said that any privacy bill that you might see, basically like 75% of all privacy legislation relates to like some the kind of core of what you'd expect in a privacy bill, right? And then like that remaining 25% is really like what differs from bill to bill, right? And you see that, especially in like the penalties and the state level bills, right? And, and then the private right to action too. But I guess when I read those bills as just a layman, I'm like, okay, well, they're describing the penalty and there's a penalty and the penalty is like conceptually what happens if you violate it. And so that comports, right? That checks. And I guess when a lawyer reads that, that's very much like a reason for like a privacy lawyer, someone who's like, you know, interested, you know, has a professional interest in in this topic that's a substantive difference like or that could represent a substantive difference versus a layman like myself reading it and like okay well there's a penalty component that makes sense right is that yeah i think that's right i think particularly if you're thinking and obviously i'm a lawyer represent companies for the most part so call i feel like i'm a privacy advocate but i still you know have sympathy for the industry position which is Mm -hmm. you know there's a desire to comply you need to have teeth right every law needs to have teeth even inside these corporations lawyers will tell you it's actually helpful to have some fines at some point because it helps them come in house and say this is a real thing and we need to get funding and support for it so the idea of fines the idea of penalties like you can't have a workable legislative structure without it but i think the private right of action in particular causes concern because it leads to some like gotcha litigation it's not clear that there's a real benefit for consumers and it it does shift the risk analysis like when you talk about biometric data I and mean, all the bipa lawsuits that come out of illinois and we're talking like hundreds of millions of dollars it's actually one of the statutes where the consumer actually does get a substantial amount of money when they're part of these class actions these are huge fines and i think that just causes so much more angst than we're going to have a regulator. Those could also be huge fines, but regulators are looking to protect consumers. Private right of action is usually brought by plaintiff's lawyers who are, have an economic interest in seeing, you know, an, a particular outcome from a case. 
Right. And the economics there are also like very much skewed in favor of those trial lawyers, right? Like in anyway, I was, I was talking to someone recently about this and and I was kind of shocked to hear about like the economics of those class action cases with respect to like what the class actually gets versus the the legal team. Right, right. And I, I appreciate like again, you'll hear from privacy advocates and it's like we have to have this private right of action. It's the only way consumers, you know, get some redress. But if you look at the economics, you know, in most cases outside of BIPA and the biometric data, you'll get these involuntarily. I'm sure you've gotten these emails like, oh, you're qualified yeah. for this class action. You can get like a coupon to the store yeah. for like $10. Is that really, you know, is that really helping you get redress for your rights? Probably, probably not. I think actually it's more effective when it's enforced by regulators and then they're fines. And then there are things that are even more painful for companies than fines in some cases, right? Like if you uh, deal with the FTC, you might be under a consent decree, a 20-year consent decree where you have to report to the FTC. Like recently, the FTC has started doing things like requesting companies, and they've done this before, but I think we're hearing about it more now, like disgorging their data, for example, or deleting the algorithms that are trained on data that was collected illegally. Like that, to me, has more teeth um, and more potential to protect consumers going forward than a class action does. Right. There was a ruling that demanded exactly that recently. I don't recall the case, but it was where some party was found guilty. The FTC said, you have to delete this algorithm. Like it was trained on data that you had no legal right to own or to access. And so you have to just get rid of the, the algorithm completely. Right. And there was um, this Everbound case, and there might have been one or two since then. But yeah, that's one of the remedies that the FTC is pursuing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether or not that would stand up in court because usually um, in the past, uh, some of the recent FTC enforcement actions, they've been settlements, right? So this is a penalty that's been agreed to in a settlement. It hasn't come um, in front of a court. So there's a question about whether or not those stand up in court. But putting that issue aside, those penalties have teeth. And I speak a lot, you know, like you said, to the drum and to other advertising conferences where it's a non-lawyer audience. And you say, disgorge my data, and you say, delete my algorithm. And it's a very different reaction than, you know, fines, which are impact the the corporation, obviously, but for the business people on the floor day to day, the idea that data gets deleted or algorithms get deleted, that has, I think, I think that sends a bit bigger signal. Right. I can absolutely imagine that. You'd prefer the fine in in some cases to the... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You might, you might build the fine into your business plan. You can't, you know, can't build for losing all of your data. Right. So what are the benefits of federal privacy legislation? So what, what kind of clarity would a federal privacy law bring to the digital operating environment? Well, I mean, it goes back to that patchwork, right? Like I was saying earlier, right now, right now you have five states, well, starting in 2023, you'll have five states that have comprehensive privacy laws. So you have the concept of opting out of sale, Sale is defined differently in different states. You have the concept of opting out of sharing for cross-contextual advertising. You have the concept of opting out of targeted advertising defined slightly different than sharing for cross-contextual advertising. You still have self-regulatory frameworks to talk about interest-based advertising. So you just have all these different concepts swirling around and it leads to inconsistency. And I think that inconsistency negatively impacts businesses in terms of how they're able to understand how they need to structure themselves. But I also think it disadvantages consumers who, like the average consumer doesn't want to have to think about what is target advertising versus share or sale or whatever it is, like having to kind of parse through all of these different terms. And then you go more broadly to 
each law comes with its own obligations to have contract terms in place, right? So it leads to this like flurry of contracting. And it's just all this activity that I think takes away from the core function of one, the, you know, obviously you have a business to run, but if you, you know, care about privacy and data protection, like actually focusing on those things rather than having to like parse through this very complex patchwork of laws. So I think what federal privacy does, and I also think that patchwork means that there are holes, right? Like there are places where things can fall that aren't completely covered because it's not a complete overlap in places. So if you do have bad actors, I think it opens room for people to be kind of like cute with the law. If you have federal privacy, I think you have, you give businesses and consumers consistency with what's required. And I just feel like that's a better path forward than what we're dealing with right now. Right. And I think, you know, when GDPR, when the deadline was reached, right, to sort of adhere to it, you know, a lot of companies had to make the decision, like, do we just cut EU users off from our service, right? Like, I remember the first time traveling abroad after GDPR went into effect, and it was like some local newspaper that I tried to access just said, you know, you get to the website and say, you're in Europe, we can't service you. There's no way for us to comply with right. GDPR. And you could see that you're just looking at like the kind of five states that'll have sort of these individuated privacy laws in place in 2023. And I mean, I guess you could come to that same calculus as as a firm, right? And just say, well, okay, sorry, uh, Illinois, right? And which is like, that's obviously not a great outcome for consumers, uh, if that's the case. But at the same time, uh, or like Nevada, or any of them, right? Just say, well, I mean, California is, is probably like a bigger loss, right? Just in terms of the number of people there. But, but like, you, you might have to just face that calculus. Whereas, well, okay, oh, yeah, we can't shut our service off for the entirety of the United States. That would, that's our business, right? So, Right, right. Well, and I think for, for U.S. companies in particular, part of that calculus for GDPR was how big is the EU footprint, right? Mm -hmm. If we're just launching, we're trying to like enter into this market, but it's not, if you balance out the economic value of being in the market with the cost of complying with this new law, you know, some, some companies didn't make the calculus that it's just not worth being there. I think that gets a lot harder in the U.S. and then California in particular. Like, I haven't talked to any company that said, you know, we're thinking of just like cutting off California. So we won't sure. deal with any California consumers, particularly in the digital space. Like that's just, it's too big. It's too big of a state. It's so, you know, I think important from an economic perspective to say, we're going to cut it off and not deal with it. So you have to. Well, right. And a lot of these products are built there, right? So <laughs> difficult. Right. You know, it's a home of Silicon Valley, you're not going to say. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So no federal privacy law in the US, right? We've seen, you know, the DSA was passed, codified into law in the EU, DMA codified into law in the EU, obviously GDPR. Why do you think the US has lagged the EU in passing privacy legislation? Because effectively, they're like lapping us now. It's, you know, there's G GDPR and then now the DSA. I mean, this has been in law in the, in the EU for quite some time. So what conditions in the EU exist that don't exist in the US? Well, historically, probably dictatorship and authoritarianism. <laughs> like if you go back to the history of uh, privacy, like privacy in the EU is a fundamental, you know, human right, right? It's been recognized like that, I think, since like the 50s, right? And part of that is because of some of the previous regimes that existed in the EU. So I tell people that Privacy is in the EU, what the First Amendment is in the US, right? It's just a core value that they have. So I think if you look at it through that lens, that's why they've been ahead of us to a certain extent. And, you know, for the US, I think that we looked at privacy more as a consumer protection measure. And I think this was 
I have to go back and check my timing, but there's this concept of like fair information principles. The EU has basically taken those principles and turned that into the directive that preceded the GDPR, which was implemented on like a member state by member state basis. And now that has become the GDPR, the regulation that covers all EU member states in the same way. So they've been iterating and evolving on their approach to privacy since we'll call it the 50s, but for these directives since the 90s. And these are all, and they're not individual specific. So it's not like consumers versus employees versus business versus government. This is just how it applies to any individual, no matter what situation you encounter them, no matter what type of person they are. In the U.S., we took those information principles and they applied to the U.S. government, how the U.S. government handles data, but not to how businesses handle data. And so for the U.S., the way privacy has developed, it's been, at least in my perspective, more reactive and more sector specific, right? So you have like email gets invented and then people start spamming you. So now you have canned spam, you know, so you like something happens and we say, oh, this is now a problem now. So we're going to like pass this law that addresses this specific issue. But we haven't looked broadly to say, who are we from a privacy perspective? Like, what do we think more broadly about privacy? It's more, we see an issue and so we address it like text message, you know, the iPhone gets invented and now there are more text messages. And so now we have a law that addresses what, how text spam happen. So it's always kind of like chasing these evolutions in technology as opposed to having like a broad-based, here's our, philosophically, here's our view on privacy. And so that's why I think they've gotten a little bit ahead of us. And I think that's what we're trying to do now. Like, who are we as a country? How do we think about privacy more broadly? And then how do we actually start to pass laws? The challenge is, all of this technology and these business practices have developed in the meantime and have been designed based off of this gap in our privacy rules. So some of the friction I think you see with U.S. companies trying to comply is like they weren't built to deal with these laws, right? They're not set up that way. And so it doesn't mean they can't get there. Obviously, they can, but it's a bigger lift that I think regulators understand because of how things have evolved in the U.S. versus the EU. I feel like I go back and forth a lot on this notion. So I, sometimes I'll speak to you know people in Congress who are just trying to better understand like the digital advertising space or or even like regulatory agencies. And you know, I go back and forth on this view of, you know, look, the evolutionary cycles of consumer tech sort of necessarily get more complex and potentially even shorter by design, right? And that's just the nature of like call it uh, technological progress. And you can get to a point where those cycles are so short and they're so profound that there's just an impossibility for like a legislative body or a regulatory body to keep up. And it's not because the people are stupid or whatever. It's just that they're not specialists in those technologies or in the, the applications of technology. And the tech is like just running away with this, these sort of like compounding complexities that even people within like that technological field may not understand because they're like two or three cycles behind. But then I think about, could that exclusively be true about the kind of consumer tech that I care about, like digital advertising or like identity or just personalization in general? And would that be like less true of like, you know, whatever the energy industry, right? Which seems to have been like, and maybe correct me if I'm totally wrong here, but it seems like that's been pretty effectively regulated. Or at least there's been regulation that, that that have applied there that have sort of like kept up. And so, you know, that could be just a way of excusing either the technology industry, the consumer technology industry, sort of not working proactively or not working productively with uh, governments and, and just being like 
sort of like very loath to open themselves up to regulation and to sort of like collaborate on productive legislation. Um, and I'm just like overestimating that industry, or maybe it is really that dire. Like, where do you fall there? Um, maybe somewhere in the middle. I mean, I do think there are industries that have been more highly regulated. And so because of that, and that's not just privacy regulation, right? Like if we're talking about the energy sector, obviously there are other types of regulation that impact how technology evolves. So you see things moving more slowly because they have to. If you look at like healthcare or the pharmaceutical industry, there's always so fast you can move because there are approvals that need to happen there. You know, there are other bodies that regulate, again, not just the privacy, but just largely speaking, how your business operates. Um, but for consumer tech, and I hate when people say, oh, there was no regulation before. Like there's been regulation, but it's just been more broad based, right? You've had the FTC regulating on if you had unfair, if there was unfairness or, you know, deceptive acts and practices, but there hasn't been any digital advertising specific regulation. So, which is and pluses and minuses, right? The plus has been it's allowed innovation to really escalate, I think, at a rate that we wouldn't have seen previously, right? So to your point, the pace of technology and the pace of improvements, all these cycles, it moves very quickly and it's hard to keep up from now from a regulatory perspective because now you're kind of like chasing a ball down a hill. So you've, but that's, that's allowed innovation to move forward. But on the flip side of that, it's a complete cultural shift now to say, oh, well, wait, now we're going to have, because I mean, in my perspective, a lot of these laws, I think some of the other states like Virginia and Colorado, for example, have language that are more GDPR-like and are broader. But like, if you look at California, the way that's written, and you know, if you look at the people behind it and what they were focused on, it's very specific to the digital advertising industry. And so an area that was able to move forward with, you know, regulation, but like call it squishy regulation, um, now has very specific prescriptive restrictions in place. And I think that kind of cultural shift has been very difficult. Do you think that the sort of like specific prescriptive industry level or like feature level regulation is, is a function of just, well, it's California and those companies are based there and there's just like more of a general cognizance of whatever of these these industries or, or these specific harms. Do you think that that played a role or is that just a coincidence? It might be coincidence. I mean, my understanding, at least, is like Alistair McTaggart, you know, one of the main authors behind the CCPA, discovered and became very uncomfortable, unhappy, upset at the idea of all the data collection that happens behind the scenes in digital advertising online, right? Like that was the thing that was called put a bee in his bonnet <laughs> and yeah. you know kind of gave the motivation to put this and to go down the path of the CCPA. And so I don't know if it's because I don't think that I think he could have been sitting in New York, for example, and we would have had okay. a comprehensive privacy law in New York. I do think that historically California has always been on the forefront. And well I, I take that back. We wouldn't have had the legislative mechanism to pass a ballot initiative in New York. So like there's also from a legislative perspective, you could put a ballot initiative up and get popular vote on it in California in a way that's not available in other places. So I do think that helps. But I, I think it's a general concern. And this concern isn't new, right? Like I think once we had open RTB and programmatic started to take off, the FTC did look at data brokers and there's been a concern about data brokers and information sharing online. But I think for a large part, we were relying on self-regulatory frameworks to say, well, this is so complicated. It's moving so quickly. We should let the industry, you know, regulate itself and have some teeth so it can get escalated upwards when things, when people don't comply, but maybe we don't have all the tools to regulate this space right now. And I think it's become clear over the years that self-regulation, at least in the eyes of regulators and maybe the public wasn't sufficient. So that's where you have someone like 
Alistair McTaggart come in and say, no, we need to have like a stronger hammer. We need to have tighter controls. And I think that's where you see some of the more prescriptive aspects of California's privacy law. Yeah. I mean, self-regulation, it, it kind of reminds me of that story of like the Soviet nuclear engineer, right? You probably heard this story where like their radar system, like falsely detected, like an incoming <laughs> nuclear strike, like an imminent nuclear. And so he was told, okay, launch the missiles. Here we go. This is it. And he just didn't. And World War III was like averted, or I wouldn't even say World War III, like the, the destruction of humanity was averted as a result of this one person just like defying this order. And I think he was like imprisoned for it. And it's just like, do we want to depend on that? I don't feel like I have like an ideological stake here, but it's like, yeah, I don't know. That bulwark, I think, always kind of seems pretty flimsy. If we're just like, well, there's going to be one person who just defies orders. There was a thread <laughs> on Twitter. What's been interesting about, about the havoc at Twitter is, is we really have gotten like a pretty good look at like the machinery of like a you know big tech company, not like not like megatech. Twitter is never really that big, but in terms of DAU, in terms of market cap, whatever, but about how a lot of these decisions are made. And there was a kind of a story like that. It's this, this person, I don't remember their name, but they had quit many years ago. And he said, uh, well, because of all the you know sort of turmoil, I'll, I'll tell the story. Uh, I He was a, an engineer and I guess a telco had come to Twitter and said, we will buy all of your users' location data. Like if you sell us, we'll pay you lavishly for all this location data. And you will set up like a pipeline and you just deliver it to us like in real time. And so this person was sort of tasked with building like the mechanism for making that transfer. And, you know, he said, you know, that's a, an invasion of people's privacy. And so he, he worked with the data science team and they applied differential privacy to the data so that you know, you had like kind of group level data, but it was noised and you wouldn't have been able to identify like any individual user. And and he presented that to the Twitter exec who, you know, sort of tasked him with this and he brought it to the telco. And the telco said like, no dice, we want the data, we want the raw data. And so this individual just quit. And he was the only person, I guess, that knew that part of the tech stack. And so because he quit, you know, that feature was never implemented. And I think on his way out, he, in the story anyway, this, you know, it's not corroborated to my knowledge. So it could be totally apocryphal, I guess. But in the story, he said he reached out to Jack. He had quit. He had resigned. He reached out to Jack. He said, look, this is what I was asked to do. I'm not going to do it. And Jack said, okay, that doesn't sound right. Let me dig into it. And he, he dug into it and he said, okay, no, we shouldn't do that. And so we kind of canceled the project. But it's like that self-regulation, I think a lot of times there's always going to be this tension. And this is just from like, you know, an insider's perspective, having seen these kind of projects develop and having been brought in to sort of help PM these types of projects in the past, it's like the product team or the executive team or whatever, the management's always going to want to sort of like maximize for commercial impact. And then there's usually like an in-house GC who's like doing God's work, right? And and they're they're going to want to like, well, we're just like a risk team, right? And they're going to want to minimize risk. And so it's like, no, we just won't do that. And then you get some data science person who's kind of stuck in between. It's like, okay, how can we achieve both? How can we make both parties happy? But I mean, you know, that sort of self-regulation, it's like you'd hope that people have some sort of like generalized sense of propriety with user data, but who knows? And you can't always guarantee against that. I, I mean, I do feel like there's like some sort of like legal constraints that need to be applied because I've seen cases where, no, 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 they're like, if you let people sort of implement whatever they want, there would be like the sort of like most rapacious, like unrelenting ingestion and usage of data that you could imagine where, you know, it would make kind of most reasonable people like very uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Because I think that that's what the motivation is, right? Like everyone that you talked about has a different lens in which they're looking at a project and a different motivation about what they're trying to accomplish. So if you're trying to get 
you know, the most commercial value. No one wants to hear from the lawyer that maybe you don't need all of that data. But, you know, if I talk to a lot of data scientists, I talk to a lot of business people, people who are formerly in, in the industry, it does seem like maybe all of that data, like the goal could be accomplished without, you know, vacuuming up all of that data. But putting that aside, I understand that that's the lens at which that person is looking at things. I mean, I think the challenge for self-regulation it is probably a couple of things. Well, one is just enforcement, right? So if self-regulation requires you to, for example, like say certain things in your privacy policy or have like the GAA opt-out icon, you can do that. But there's, you know, you have to kind of figure out that there are other things going on behind the scenes, right? And I think finding out what's going on behind the scenes has been one of the barriers between really getting good data governance internally. And I think one of the things that will be interesting to see coming out of California is this idea that the SDPPA, the new agency, um, can audit you at any time that they could get assessments from you to see what you've done to comply. I think that requires more internal governance and structure and thinking about, well, do we need to collect everything? How do we put structures in place? Also, so that this doesn't become this huge point of friction in the company that you can still maybe not move as quickly, but you can still get things done, but it requires more structure. I think internally, I think that ends up being helpful. Right, yeah. And you know, to that point, I was doing this panel last week on differential privacy. And I was referencing, you know, Apple has like a white paper on their website. It's like how we apply differential privacy. And it's like a five-year-old could understand it. So that's good. But then it's not really going into sort of like useful detail at that point, right? It's like, well, okay, I get it. You know, you use different, like you add noise. And so it's like, well, that, and I can understand why they wouldn't really want to go into too much more detail because this is, you know, proprietary technology they've developed, right? And especially with Apple, if, if they, are communicating that privacy is like a, a differentiator for their hardware, then yeah, they want to keep that stuff secret because it's a trade secret, essentially. It's a, it's a product. It's, it's proprietary IP. And so I guess that's the issue. It's like, well, how, how much can you make public or how much can you make available for auditing or whatever without actually giving up like real trade secrets? Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, it's also like what's digestible for the public, right? Like, I think it's one thing to provide information to a regulatory body where that's under the cover of confidentiality, arguably, mm -hmm. or hopefully. And there's another thing about what do you disclose to the public? And I think right. there's a trade-off between, you know, wanting to have transparency, but wanting to avoid deception. So if we say we add, you know, noise into our data sets, we use differential privacy. And so your information will, you know, will never be exposed. Well, that's probably not true, right? Because something yeah. will happen, or maybe it's not, um, not applied in every single product. And then you've opened yourself, you know, for potential deception. And so I think the, the what you have to disclose to regulators is one thing, but I think the thing that uh, that becomes harder to balance is what do you say to the public so you can be transparent, you know, make it easy to understand, but also not open yourself up to saying so much that you actually tell on yourself. Right. And kind of connecting that back to my point earlier. So, okay, let's say that, in, let's say in Europe, right? So they've got this demand that, you know, you, you need to sort of open up these systems to like external review, right? And let's say, okay, we've built this fantastic system. It uses federated learning so that all the data stays on the device and we're just sort of sharing, you know, the model coefficients back with a centralized server and they're getting ingested in it and the model coefficients are being used to update the model. And it's like, okay, well, who can you show that to that's going to understand that? I mean, that's like, you need a deep technologist in that field. And guess what? 
if one exists, if one graduates from a PhD program with a specialization in that, guess who's going to be competing to hire them? It's going to be the big tech companies, right? Because there aren't that many of those. It's not like there's this overabundance of people that can understand that and build those systems, right? And then like the EU saying, well, we've got to hire something like whatever, a thousand technologists to help us enforce this. Like, how are you going to hire them? How are you going to compete with the companies that want to hire them and are willing to offer, you know, very attractive compensation where I imagine the EU probably, you know, is, is offering compensation that's at a much lower level. And I, I think it's, you can make the case where it's like, well, you could say the same thing about like some cigarette company. It's how do you ever, well, I, I, there's a lot of people that are probably like, you know what, I never worked for a cigarette company. But I think if you went through a PhD program and specialized in this thing, you probably going to want to go work somewhere where you're, where you're actually going to be able to apply what you've learned and developed and like see it like live in the wild. It's not really the same thing. I don't think that sort of like moral calculus plays in in the same way, depending on how you evaluate big tech on that vector. But anyway. I think that's right. I, the legal profession has something like I call externships. And I'm sure they have something similar other places, but basically like you're at a big corporate law firm, you can go work for a nonprofit. You might work for a government agency, call it for three months. You make your, your, your salary, your law firm salary, but you're doing right. this work, you know, for these places where the salary would be much lower, but it gives them access to kind of new infusion of talent. Obviously, they're, you know, if you're regulating their conflict, potential conflict issues and that kind of thing. And I said this on Twitter once and people are like, oh, I don't want, you know, anyone from Facebook anywhere near like the government or regulations because they'll corrupt it because whoever would go to Facebook is obviously corrupt. And I think that's a little too cynical because I do think there are people who go to these companies and want to help do the right thing. But I would love to see some way to allow people to go and help regulators understand technology in a way that doesn't require them to suffer with a government salary or make the choice between a government salary and you know a big tech salary. And I do think that there's value in having the multiple perspectives. Like if you talk to someone who's been in the government who then comes and works for a big company, I think it's a little eye-opening to see some of the challenges of complying with the law that they didn't have visibility into before. And then I think, you know, ideally vice versa. So I, I think we would be benefited from opening the lines of communication between the two, but I, you know, there are obviously some complex challenges and then the moral considerations of, is this a person we want working in the government? Right, yeah. Uh that could cause some some frictions there, I guess. Um, okay, yeah. so, so so we've seen kind of a, a spate of recent legislation be proposed, you know, that takes aim at you know quote unquote big tech. So you've got the AICOA, the Banning Surveillance Advertising Act, the Open App Markets Act, the Competition and Transparency and Digital Advertising Act, the ADPPA. So I guess my my question to you is why now? Why have all these things been proposed recently? And and in I think in the cases of all these bills this year? Maybe not. But so why now? What what caused this flurry of bills related to sort of competition, transparency, data usage to be proposed in, in the sort of recent 24 months? Sure. Well, I think from the privacy perspective, this has been bubbling up for many years, right? So I think, well, that's what we're seeing. This is like finally coming to a head, but this has been kind of simmering under the, the surface for quite some time. And if you think back we could go all the way back to say, I think right before 20, uh, 2018, when GDPR went live, I think it was a month before that, that the Cambridge Analytica scandal um, was revealed, right? 
And so that was like one of the first big, let's call it like data or privacy scandals that really got consumers' attention because I think regulators have been focused on these issues. Like I mentioned, the data broker report and FTC looking at these things. But if you weren't really in this industry, I think the average consumer, I don't know if I would say they were fully paying attention to what was going on. So you have Mm -hmm. Cambridge Analytica. You have GDPR, which led to the flurry of like privacy notices um, getting dumped into people's inboxes at the end of May. And then this, it just kind of led to the snowball effect of additional public conversation around privacy and data and EU versus US and what advertisers are doing. And shortly thereafter, we have the CCPA and the campaign, you know, to get the CCPA passed, the ballot initiative. So I feel like from a consumer, from a public perspective, wanting to see privacy regulation, this has had a snowball effect that maybe we could point back to like early 2018 as one of the starting or kicking off points um, where consumers got focused on this more than others. Like I said, regulators haven't been focused, like consumers coming to the table and being concerned about this as well. And then you saw these reports, like the New York Times a couple of years ago had a big report on location data and how companies are tracking your location data and could tell from your phone. Every And then they took like two or three people and said, with this information, not that these companies were doing this, but they could do this. So you had all these reports about privacy scandals, how data was being used. So I think you've had this like push or surge for, you know, additional privacy protection. And then, you know, on parallel path as technology has been evolving, I think it's become clearer that data and personal data in particular is a competitive advantage. Um, So as you see certain companies get bigger and the argument has been some of these privacy regulations harm smaller companies and allow some of the big tech platforms to continue to thrive or absorb the fines and keep, you know, keep moving. um, There's been a concern about, well, how does data and antitrust intersect, right? So like, you know, five years ago, I probably didn't speak at any antitrust panels. Now there's a big antitrust conference and the Bar Association has in DC and they have privacy panels now because now there's a desire to talk about the intersection of privacy and antitrust. So I feel like this is kind of spiraling to this point where there's a clear need and understanding that, you know, consumers' data is being used in ways that they probably didn't understand before. And then it's also offering a competitive advantage to some companies. And I think regulators are now getting pressure. And, and it's also with the business uncertainty, I think businesses actually now are lobbying to have, like, well, just tell us what we need to do so we can move forward because right. this place of uncertainty isn't helpful for us either. So you're getting calls on all sides to get something done. When a company says that, I mean, like Facebook has said that, like, regulate us, please. Like, we don't want to live in this, you know, sort of with this pall of uncertainty cast over us all the time. Like, regulate us. Do you believe that? Yes. I mean, I won't speak on, like, Facebook specifically, but just generally. Right. Like, generally speaking, I think they want both, right? I think they do want certainty because just this... Yeah, I talk to companies all the time about this. It's, it's a changing landscape, right? It was like right. GDPR, CCPA, it's these five states, it's different regulations. There's now different sectors have laws or different types of data that will have laws. There's like evolving laws in the EU when people thought, I think in the US, that you just have GDPR and you'd solve that and you'd be done with it. No, now we have additional, there's like all this like changing, I think, landscape and the platforms are changing their policies too, right? So you have like ATT, you have the deprecation of cookies. It's all of this uncertainty. And so I think, you know, you can't change what the platforms do necessarily, but I do think companies want to see some security in a law and they want to be regulated now with the caveat that they want to be regulated in a way that 
allows them to continue to move forward. So no one wants a regulation that's going to right. turn all the faucets off or all the data. No one wants a regulation that's going to, you know, have all these, you know, class actions coming at them. So yes, we want regulation, but what does that regulation look like? That's where we get into some of the back and forth about how to actually hammer out a good privacy law. Yeah, right. I mean, so that's a good point. And I mean, it's one that I find kind of frustrating, like when I just look at, you know, the reality of some of the bills that are proposed or just a lot of the rhetoric that, you know, you see from the people that have real influence on how these things get structured, right? So like, you know, talking about shutting the the, faucet, the faucets off. Well, of course, these companies don't want that. But I would argue that consumers don't want that, right? Consumers want their data to be utilized for their benefit. They don't want all digital products to go back to 1998. They don't want punch the monkey ads. Do you remember those ads as annoying like they, those ads punch were, the monkey. <laughs> you don't remember? So it was like this monkey that it was those, ban, you know, banner ads, right? And so the monkey was yeah. moving back and forth and you had like a big red. Uh, oh my God. I love. have to look this up. <laughs> no, but it was totally obnoxious, right? And that's why that ad was ubiquitous because it had the best click rates because everyone's trying to punch the monkey and it was tricking people into clicking the ad, right? And so and this is a little bit hyperbolic, but like, I don't think there's a like tractable sentiment within just call it like the general consumer body, which is basically everyone for digital products now with smartphones, I mean, it's everyone. I don't think there's any sort of like sentiment that we want to lose the functionality that we've gained. Right. And, you know, back to my earlier point and like the pace of those, like sort of that technological innovation is, has accelerated over time. Right. And so people just want their data to be used. And this, this would be my like if someone asked me like high level, what does digital privacy mean? And I had to come up with like a pithy, like one liner, it's that my data is used in ways that I would expect it to be used, right? Or ways that I have been informed it's going to be used and sort of made the decision to like, okay, to sort of continue using that product, right? I think genuinely like that's what people want. And so when you see some of the the bills, like for instance, I, and this is my, you know, this is my personal belief, but like the banning Surveillance Advertising Act goes way too far. And I think it goes, um, the magnitude of that bill would be such that I think consumers ultimately would be like unhappy with the consequences of it. Now, not all those consequences would be first order. So I don't know that they'd be a you know, general consumer that doesn't understand anything about digital advertising, which why would they? Would not recognize that as a consequence of it. But nonetheless, it'd be a downstream second order effect. And I, I think like that's kind of, sometimes I, I do worry that that kind of like, Yes, you're acting on behalf of the consumer. And, and there's the, there are these things that have happened um, that got consumers, you know, sort of invested in this. Um, and therefore, that's when the legislative process should, should kick in. But then we shouldn't do things that are anti-consumer as a result of that, right? And so my sense is like, sometimes, and again, speaking to some legislators, speaking to some regulators, I feel like, yes, you purport to be doing this on behalf of the consumer, but you don't have like an advocate for the consumer, I think, in this decision-making process, which is articulating the value of these things to consumers. So let's jettison the bad stuff and try to wrap our arms around as much of the good stuff as we can, right? So that we can kind of strike this balance. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. I mean, I think, well, first, I hate the term surveillance advertising. It's oh, very disappointing too. to me that the, you know, we're talking about the advertising industry. They weren't able to get ahead of the marketing of their activities. Oh, and so it's got it's gotten this label. And I think the label suggests that it's all bad, right? That there is no right. redeeming value. There's no benefit to consumers from the activity. So why do we even need to do it? And I think to your point, I don't, I don't think that's the lens at which we should look at this because I don't think consumers want to go back. I also don't 
think consumers want to pay, you know, subscriptions for every plug. Right. There's a lot of talk about like subscriptions taking away ad supported models. You know, I mean, you know, personally, and I have like a good salary. I still don't want to pay even like five dollars for 55 different platforms to get mm. access to them. I just don't. That's just not what I want to do. And I don't want to have to manage all that. So and I don't think a lot of consumers want to do that. I think they're probably willing to pay subscriptions for certain things. But the ad supported model, you know, I think does have a place. And then the question just becomes, you know, what are the harms from that? And how do we protect from the harms? Because if we look to, you know, I was talking about where some of this may have started in 2016, that's like two years, I think, into, you know, the Trump administration and like fake news and disinformation. And so I feel like some of this is also consumers are looking at how data is collected online and they're thinking about the worst harms, right? Which is like they get manipulated, they get put in these bubbles where they only hear, you know, they they only hear what they want to hear and their misinformation gets amplified, right? Like you hear a lot about that, but you don't hear about the potential benefits. And I think it'd be good to look at this through the lens of how do we structure this so that Consumers can get the, well, first acknowledge there's a benefit to advertising, right? Like there's, and also like, I don't want to see irrelevant ads. You know, you'll hear mixed viewpoints on that where people don't care. They don't look at the ads, but like I have a dog. So I don't want ads for cat food. Like I want ads for dog stuff. You know, like some of the stuff I bought that I like, it's because someone has served me an ad that was relevant to what I need. So I do believe there's value in that, but you know, you shouldn't have to risk some of the other harms, right? Or like, if we look at the changing, like, political landscape, particularly like post-Dobbs, what information, now there are other harms that we need to think about from, from having your information exposed. So I think there's a way to address, I think, what are the real harms that regulators and consumers are worried about without totally shutting the faucet off so you don't get the benefits of what advertising and ad support platforms provide. Yeah. And that's the the needle that's got to be threaded, right? So I was going back to this, I was on this panel recently about dis- differential privacy and, and it was as much academics in me. So I was by far like the least qualified person to be speaking, but I expected them to be like very hostile to me and they weren't. I felt like they were much more sort of open uh, minded and reasonable than, you know, a lot of some of the people I've spoken on to in the legislative side of things. And they said, look, all this stuff is context dependent and we can identify a harm in one context. Like harm doesn't mean there's going to, someone's going to come to your house and arrest you. Right. But that could be a harm related to Dobbs, related to your location data, right? With these bounty, these ridiculous bounties that you can, in, in Texas, you can, I mean, I'm, I'm in Texas right now. I'm from Texas and I live here. And, you know, you could make money by getting someone arrested because they terminated a pregnancy, right? And that's putting aside my feelings on that, which are, you know, I think that's atrocious, but nonetheless, okay, that's a very real human harm. I mean, that's not this theoretical thing. And that's not, that's very much like a concrete harm that would be, you know, that would be inflicted on someone. But there are other contexts where like the sort of like theoretical harm, it's not concrete or it's not sort of meaningful. And those are not the same thing. Right. And so like you could have context dependent sort of like definitions of privacy there, or, or at the very least a recognition that those harms differentiated in sort of like meaningful ways, right. Where one leads to someone going to jail Right. And one leads to something. I don't know. I'm trying to think of some like innocuous consequence, but like, well, anyway, some is an innocuous consequence. Like, and so like, if you say like, no, we have to treat all sort of, you know, use cases of like data collection and data usage as if like a privacy violation would result in someone getting hauled away in the middle of the night by like the secret police. Well, then that's like that. Then, okay, well, then you've just brought us back to like 
1998 and punch the monkey ass. Yeah, I think that makes sense. There's, I think the challenge probably is, you know, there's a certain amount of information that gets collected online, right? And so you have that information, you have your innocuous use cases for it, but then there's a risk. You get a warrant or subpoena from the government that data, you have a breach and the data gets leaked, you know, employee runs off with information and then you risk your, you know, you're at the risk for the other harms. And maybe that all that's only specific to, we can call it maybe certain categories of data are at a high risk for that activity, but it's not like internally data gets siloed based off of like the innocuous use case of data here, right? And then the potential for harm data goes here. It's all together. And so how do you, and I think that's where, you know, for me, the conversation around the privacy enhancing technologies and differential privacy and synthetic data, all of that is interesting because I feel like you get to a place where what controls can you put in place so that data that sits there can really just be used for those innocuous purposes, even if those innocuous purposes are annoying to some people, like people don't want to see the ad traveling around, but that's not the real harm, right? The real harm is someone knocking at your door. It's law enforcement. It's, you know, discrimination potentially. Um, So I think it's trying to figure out, well, how do we have internal controls so that we reduce the likelihood of those harms that we're really trying to get at, but we can still allow for what are valuable business purposes. Right, right. How should operators within the tech space, so the advertisers that use the large ad platforms or the developers that upload their apps to the app stores, how should they stay abreast? The smaller companies that don't have an in, you know, in-house, you know, team of lawyers working on this stuff and and combing over like the latest developments, you know, in privacy legislation. How should they stay abreast of legislative momentum related to privacy or competition or data usage? How does small tech prepare for the kinds of changes that are likely to directly impact the way big tech operates? Sure. I mean, I think that's kind of a power is a number question, you know, so like trying to get involved with some of the industry organizations that can help keep you abreast of what's happening. And, you know, some of them, to the extent they're lobbying organizations, might be able to lobby on behalf of your interests. Because I do think we've been talking about this the whole time. There's so much going on. There's so much evolution from the laws to uh, platform changes. And I don't see how small companies stay on top of what that means for them. Like, so I think if I was, you know, in small tech, I would want to set up internal data governance that was scaled to my size and the type of data that I have, right? So I have generally like basic practices in place. I have a business strategy for the data I need to get access to, thinking ahead to what will be like signal loss, for example, like how how am I going to protect myself from a competitive standpoint? And then what are the industry groups who will help me understand how the landscape is changing so we can evolve? And that's probably like the best roadmap that I can kind of lay out because there are groups like the IB, for example, or, you know, Cal Chambers, if you're in California, there are these, there are these bodies that will... A, keep you informed, but but also advocate for your interests. And I think if you're a small company, it's not likely you're going to be able to do that on your own. Jessica, this was a really illuminating conversation. I think we could have spoken for another hour easily and not exhausted my, my list of questions here. I appreciate your time <laughs> very much. How can people find you on the internet? How can they interact with you, engage with you? Sure. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. I'm Jessica B. Lee. I am at email, uh, jblee at loeb, L-O-E-B dot com. And then I'm still on Twitter. <laughs> so lawgirl821 on Twitter, at least for now. I haven't been convinced to pop over to any of the new platforms. So I'm waiting to see how that evolves. I just got promoted from the wait list for 
post. So I'm excited yeah, to try I'm that on the out. Wait list. <laughs> well, maybe I'll stay there. I've tried to sign up for Mastodon multiple times and every single server tells me they're not taking your sign up. So haven't uh, succeeded there. But uh, Jessica, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your insight and have a great day. Thanks. You too.